God, that because of the accomplished work of Christ, that when you look upon us, you see him. And Father, we are amazed by that, that we are that completely and entirely forgiven. And now as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you would be with us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The word of God says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. I'll just pause there for a moment. The apostle Paul here is writing, he names himself as an apostle, saying and declaring that he has authority, an authoritative uh, word that is coming from Christ himself. He says he's an apostle by the will of God. It's not something he attained to. It's not something he longed to be. In fact, he was in opposition to the gospel, so much so that he persecuted Christians. And as he was on his way to the Damascus Road, on the Damascus Road, sorry, on his way for the further persecution of Christians, Christ Jesus met him and saved him. And so he says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Notice here, very interesting, he names him as Christ Jesus. In most of the other books as he's writing, he talks about Jesus Christ the Lord. But here he says Christ Jesus. He names his title first, Christ meaning Messiah, meaning chosen one. I believe he does that very particularly. I'll get to that later in this book. But here he names Christ, his title first, then Jesus, his name. He says, Timothy's with me. So Paul's probably writing from prison in Rome. Timothy's mentioned in three of the four prison epistles. So probably this is being written in 60 AD. I would date it there, partly because uh, Colossae has a massive earthquake, and later on in 61 AD, there's no mention of the earthquake or of the care of people in this letter. I'm going to assume that means that this letter is written prior to the earthquake that happens that annihilates much of Colossae. It says he's writing to God's holy people, or could be translated saints. The saints in Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Colossae was in the Lystra Valley. It was near Areopolis. It, it was near um, Laodicea. Laodicea, of course, is the major capital of the time. They're only 11 miles from Laodicea, which was the large center. So Colossae is like a smaller town of sorts. Maybe, maybe it's similar to Hamilton and Dundas. They wouldn't be quite that size. But that idea of Laodicea being more like the Hamilton Center and Colossae being more like the Dundas Center that's there. He says, I want to offer you grace and peace from God our Father. He says, and often in, in, in Hellenistic uh, writing styles, there would always be some type of greeting. And in the Christian greeting, it's grace and peace. Grace, God's unmerited favor, and peace, this, this incredible relationship that you can have with God that is free from hostility. Now, as Paul's writing, he's writing to correct and to rebuke false doctrine that is being taught. This is very different than some of the other books in the New Testament. In Galatians and in Philippians, Paul actually names those that are teaching the false doctrine. But in both of those books, as Paul's writing, he says, these are the people that are teaching the doctrine that is false. And he names them in the book. He tells us who they are. The Judaizers of, of uh, Galatians and then in um, and Gnosticistic uh, thinking. And then in, in Philippians, again, you have some of that that is there. And they're named. But in the book of Colossians, he never names anyone. He never refutes the false doctrine directly. But in what he's espousing, you know that that's what he's doing. 
I'm going to suggest that what's happening here in Colossians is a, um, it's probably some type of syncretism, right? So what that is, is it's where two or more prevailing thoughts are colliding, and they become a greater thought, and that's what's happening here in Colossae. Let me give a couple of examples of that. I'll tell you why I think it first. Why I think that is because he'll talk about circumcision, he'll talk about Sabbath, and them following those laws, which might make you think, well, this is Judaizing. But then he'll also talk about um, the veneration of angels, and he'll also talk about um, uh, some of the cultic practices that are happening in that day, which isn't the Judaizers at all. They were legalistic and followed the law distinctly. So what's happening here is there's probably a blend and some type of Judaistic movement that has been blended with some type of Gentile pagan thought. The predominant people living in Colossae were Gentiles. They were not Jews. And this would be similar to us having conversations with the Mormons or with the Jews. Uh, not the Jews, sorry, with, with the Jehovah Witnesses or even the Muslims. You know, the, the Quran wasn't written until 630 AD. And when the Quran was written, if you read through the Quran, I've read through it a couple of times, you'll see how much of scripture they borrow uh, um, into the Quran. There's so much of it, right? Now, it's changed, it's altered, right? Because the Jews claim Abraham as, as, as uh, the, the, the one that they would follow, and through Abraham's seed, Isaac, the Muslims claim Ishmael, right? right? But you can see so much of it is just kind of adopted in. It's the same with the Jehovah Witnesses, the same with the Mormons, and yet it's false. If you're following Jehovah Witness teaching, you're following the Mormon teaching, what you believe about Christ, what you believe about God, what you believe about salvation, what you believe about the Trinity, what you believe about Scripture is all entirely false with some truth mixed in. And that's what Paul's writing against here. He's writing against some type of thought that would be like that. And so that's why I believe he names Christ Jesus, instead of Jesus Christ the Lord, which is more common in his um, uh, greetings, he names Christ Jesus because he's here referring to Christ as his title. I'm here talking about the Messiah. I'm here talking about the Christ. I'm here talking about the one who has come, who has lived, who's died, and who's alive now and resurrected. And he reminds them that God is their father, that they are indeed his children. Verse 3. So we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up in you in heaven, or for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that comes to you. He says we here. Later on he'll talk about him specifically. The we is probably him and Timothy, though it's possible that others are there with him as he writes this. But the we is most likely him and Timothy. Timothy is most likely scribing this letter. We know that because in chapter 4, Paul talks about, I am now writing with my own hand. So Timothy is probably scribing the letter. He's probably the one writing it. Um, Onesimus, who's the slave mentioned in Philemon, who seems to be there as well, is probably the one who's going to deliver it. You can kind of track all of this as you read through, and we'll get to that in chapter 4 um, as we kind of go through this book. But here Paul says, we always thank God for you. Every time we remember you, every time we're thinking of you, this church in Colossae, we're thankful to God for you. We're thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ for you. Every time we pray, we just give thanks. 
Who can you think of in your Christian walk that every time you reflect on them, every time you think of them, you say, I thank God for you. I thank God for you. It might be someone you know. It might be someone you, you don't know. There are people I don't know well or I don't know at all that I thank God for. You know, I thank God for a Tim Keller. His writings have been instrumental in the way that I think about a number of things. I'm thankful for him. I'm, I'm thankful for other godly men and women. I'm thankful for the pastor I grew up under. His daughter married my brother, and so we see them every so often. And every time I think about them, I'm thankful to God for them, for the godly heritage that the Lord granted me in growing up under good, solid, biblical teaching. Who do you thank God for? When you think of them, when you reflect on them, you say, I thank God for them. I thank God for Jen Miller, right? For years, I was thankful for Todd and Jennifer Miller. Todd passed away now a few years ago, who served the Lord faithfully. I told her story this week to someone. Um, and, and I remember when they were in Uzbekistan serving the Lord. And as they were there in Uzbekistan serving the Lord, they came home on home assignment. While they were home, their house was invaded. All of their possessions were confiscated, having served in that country for a number of years. I'm going to say they were there for eight or nine years. Um, and instead of saying, well, Lord, we did our best, they looked for Uzbeks in another place. They found Uzbeks in Tajikistan, and then they went back, having been thrown out of one country into another country to reach Muslims for Christ. said, we're going to do that. And every time I would think of them, I would just thank God for them. I remember one time having Todd and Jennifer here at the church years ago, and I used to ask them to preach, and I realized, man, Todd is not a preacher. And I'm doing them a great disservice as having him preach from the front. And so I began to just interview them for 20 minutes on Sundays. He wasn't a public orator, right? That wasn't their gift and skill set. They were just godly people that God had called to go overseas and be used of him in the lives of people around them that didn't know Christ. And every time I think, I think of them, I thank God for them. And Jen has gone on to continue to serve the Lord with her kids, faithfully teaching missionaries how to be missionaries in New Zealand. And every time I get a report from her, every time I hear from her, every time our church has her listed, I thank God for her. Paul says, I thank God because of your faith. It was their faith that encouraged me. I mean, if I was in Uzbekistan, Amy and I, for a number of years serving the Lord, and while we were on home assignment, everything we had was taken away from us, and we were told we were not allowed back in the country, I might say, well, Lord, that was a good run. Let's do something else. But their faith to say, Lord, where would you have us go next? What country would you have us serve in? Paul says, we heard about your faith in Christ Jesus. Note, he does that again. And of your love for all of God's people. We've heard about not only this faith that you have in Christ, but we've heard about this love that you have for each other. This faith and love has sprung home from hope. Now, this is a triad often mentioned in Scripture, right? In Corinthians, you find it's faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Here, the triad's mentioned differently, and it is in other parts of Scripture. Here, it's faith, love, and hope. It's not because hope now trumps love. Hope will one day be realized. The reason, the reason Paul in Corinthians says faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love, is one day our faith will be made sight. Amen? One day our hope will be realized, but love will never end. There will be an end to our faith because our faith will be realized. There will be an end to our hope because our hope will be made certain, but there will never be an end to love. But in this passage here, in this moment, Paul's saying, I thank God for your faith. And I thank God for the love he's granted you, not only for him, but for each other. 
and, and it's sprung out of the hope that you have. We have a hope, a certain expectation. It is good news, the hope that God has granted us. The hope we have is certain and is true. I'll get to more of that in a moment. Note, it's stored up in heaven for you. Is that not good news? You see, as these false teachers are coming alongside of them, they're saying Jesus isn't enough. We'll find that as we get into the rest of Colossians 1 and Colossians 2, he's simply not enough. If you're really going to be saved, you need to add this to your salvation. If you really need to be saved, you need to believe in this. If you really want to be saved, you need this. And Paul's whole argument is Christ's sufficiency and accomplished work is indeed enough. It's indeed enough. And what God has done for you, the hope you have, is stored up in heaven for you. What does that mean? No one can snatch it. No one can take it away. Because what you have heard is the true message of the gospel. It is accurate. It is reliable. It is true. It is true. Faith looks back on Christ's accomplished work on the cross and his resurrection. Love looks up to God the Father and his love for us in the person and work of Christ and then around the love he grants us to each other. And hope looks forward to the day when Christ will return. Amen? Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. In the same way, he says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has done among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing. This may be reminiscent of the book of Genesis, right? Where you're to multiply, right? And spread, right? That, that's what God has called his people to do. And there may be echoes here. They talk about allusions in scripture of Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. Here he says, you're bearing fruit. Be fruitful and growing and multiply. The whole idea here is what God had called Adam to do in that covenant he made with him and Eve. As Christ is the true Adam. He's now in this new people that he's at work in all across the world calling us to do. And he says the gospel bore fruit. It's growing through, this, through the world. In the same way that it's doing that, it's done it in your lives. It's happening in your midst. You know, as I watch God work in the lives of people in our church, whether it be through COVID or in the second wave, I can truly say that the gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing throughout James North. I can see it. When I hear reports of the staff talking about people that they're connecting with, as I've predominantly been connecting with donors through this season, I'm encouraged by hearing about ways that God is using each of you in the lives of people around us. And it's bearing fruit and growing. And Paul says, not just through the whole world, but in your lives as well. Because you've truly understood God's grace. What is that? Understanding God's grace is simply that I cannot earn my way to heaven. That I cannot make my way to heaven. That I cannot bridge my way to heaven. That I cannot mend my relationship with God. But God's done that on my behalf. Grace is simply accepting the accomplished work of Christ and what God has done for me in him. That is grace. Grace is receiving what God is granted. Grace is acknowledging what God has done. Grace is saying, I cannot, but God did. And God was able to, and God accomplished, and God is great. 
Grace is simply saying, I am receiving all that I am able to receive in Christ. Do you know the gospel is bearing fruit and growing through the whole world today? Look at these statistics. It is estimated that there are 660 million evangelicals in the world today. Asia has the highest number with 250 million. You can read the rest that's there. Africa, the next, with 185 million. South America, 123 million. These are last year's stats. North America, 107 million. Europe, 23 million. Oceania, 7 million. 7 million. One of the greatest proofs of the Christian faith ever is this. In any other world religion, if you study world religions, whether it be Hinduism, Buddhism, the Muslim faith, in any other world religion, each world religion predominantly stays near its center. Its center never moves. The birthplace of Buddhism is the center of Buddhism. That doesn't mean there aren't Buddhists who've migrated. It doesn't mean there aren't Buddhists who haven't moved. And there's not Buddhism here in North America. It simply means that its centerpiece is where it started. The centerpiece of the Islamic faith is in the Middle East where it started. Though there is migration, of course. The centerpiece of the Hindu faith is in India where it started. But the Christian faith is so unique from it. Its center is constantly and continually moving. It began in the Middle East. It moved over into Europe. It then moved over into America and North America. And look at these stats. The highest number of Christians in the world today are in Asia. That's not where it began. In Africa, it's not where it began. In South America, it's not where it began. In North America, it's not where it began. Because one of the greatest proofs for the resurrection is this. The centerpiece of Christianity is always on the move because God is on the move. And he's saving people from every language, from every tribe, from every custom, from every place as a people for himself. That is what God is doing. He's at work and he's saving and the gospel is multiplying. The gospel is growing. The gospel is bearing fruit because the gospel is true. Study it against any other religion, any other world religion, and you will see this as fact. The only answer for it is that our God is truly God. That all others are false. And that Jesus Christ indeed Verse 7, you learn this gospel from Epaphras, the fellow servant, a dear fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. He's told us of your love in the spirit. He's mentioned here, he's mentioned later in the book of Colossians, he's mentioned in the book of Philemon. That's it. We don't know much about him. But what we do know is he's a fellow servant or slave and minister of Christ, faithful, who went to Colossae because he'd heard the gospel, was burdened for a people who didn't know Christ and shared the gospel with them. That's what we know about him. He was burdened and he went and he shared and he shared faithfully. He told the people of Colossae of their need for Christ. Paul didn't plant this church. Timothy didn't plant this church. This gentleman who heard the gospel and was burdened for the loss, went and planted this church. And he's come back and reported to Paul and Timothy and told them about the love in the spirit, this unity that they have in the Holy Spirit for each other. This is just a guy. It's mentioned a couple of times in scripture. 
You know, that's most of us, right? Most of us aren't speaking in large forums. Most of us don't have great credentials. And so who has God burdened you for? There's a church in Colossae because God placed on a man's heart the need for those people to come to faith in Christ. And you might feel like, well, who am I? You're God's child. Well, who am I? You're his daughter or son. Well, who am I? You are a recipient of grace. Well, who am I? You are an ambassador for Christ, a minister of reconciliation. Where you work, where you live, in your family. That's who you are. And so who has God burdened you to reach? Who has God burdened you to share the gospel with? Is it a colleague at work? Is it a fellow student? Is it a neighbor? Is it another business owner? Is it a family that lives near you? Who is it that God has burdened you to share the gospel with? As the elders unleashed their vision last week, one of the things that we were praying for is that each of us would just be renewed in our vision and passion for the people around us that don't know Christ. That we'd be burdened for family members, burdened for friends, burdened for those around us that don't know Christ. That we'd be burdened for those that are listening to false teaching. On Friday, I spent two and a half hours with a group of godly men from our city. Because one of the churches in our city that's in a mainline denomination that's been evangelical over the years, that denomination this June is about to vote on sexual ethics that will change the entire denomination. And we sat together, I was invited to this meeting with all reformed guys and myself as a Baptist reformed guy, sitting in this meeting in Blessings Church, having this incredible conversation about what it would mean to support this person, what it would mean to, to walk alongside of them, what it would mean to, to care for them. And as we together sat there thinking, and this gentleman from another church, from a different tradition, and another part of the city is sharing about all the false teaching that's going on, we were all just burdened to say, what do we do? And as we were trying to give him advice, he looked at us and said, what do I do with my flock? What, what do I do with all the people there? The church is split on this. What do I do with all the people there that are true believers? What do I do? And I can hear his burden. That is happening all around us continually. And we need to stand for Christ Jesus the Lord. Who is the living one. The true message of the gospel. He do so with grace and love based on the faith we have in him and the hope that he has granted us. But we do so without shame. Wisely, but without shame. So who are you burdened for? Who are you burdened for? Are you burdened for your neighbors, your family, your friends, your colleagues? We're praying that each of us here would be able to identify some of the people we're burdened for and that God would use us in their midst. Maybe you're burdened for the youth of this neighborhood and you're going to Sign up to help with the youth programs with Derek. Maybe it's the children of this neighborhood. And with Deanna and Diana, you're going to sign up for some of our children. Uh, maybe it's the marginalized. And you're going to talk to Marcia about caring for the marginalized. Maybe it's, we're not all burdened for our neighbors or colleagues at work. Sometimes it's a, a people group we're burdened for. Maybe it's an immigrant or a refugee. You know, we have some of our Karen friends with us here this morning. They're going to start to meet this afternoon. You know their story. I've told it so many times that Amy told me last time I told it. You don't need to keep telling it. But you know the story of their plight, right? They're meeting in here in our facility, been working with them to help them identify someone in their midst that can be trained for full-time ministry. This afternoon, 
Paul, Marcio, myself, Jamie will all be at their service to help them out. And over the next number of weeks, I'll be preaching there today. Maybe some of you would be burdened to come. You want to come and be a part of it and sign up when you get here. Right? Same protocols. And join us in caring for us, them and join us in loving them. Because I've seen so many of them that have been either caught up in the way of the world or they've been won over by the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons. And our dream, our passion is that Christ Jesus the Lord would win them back as his true children. And so we're walking alongside of them unapologetically to care for them and love them in Jesus' name. Listen to this. It is estimated that of the 7.75 billion people alive in the world today, 3.23 billion live in unreached people groups with little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 3.23 billion people. According to the Joshua Project, there are 17,446 unique people groups in the world with 7,400 plus of them considered unreached. That's over 41% of the world's population. The vast majority, 85% of these least reached groups exist in the 1040 window. Less than 10% of missionary work is done among these peoples. Those stats are just out of last year. I remember this line, George Burwer said it years ago, and he's been quoted so many times since. He said, if only we could see the value of one soul like God does. If only we could see the value of one soul like God does. George Burwer, who's now 81, was raised in an unbelieving home. Dorothea Clapp was his neighbor across the street who began praying for him from his birth. At 17 years of age, he was invited to a Billy Graham crusade. Billy Graham was 35 years at the time, years old, in Madison Square. He went with his friends on the bus because he wanted to hear this great orator. And at that Billy Graham crusade, he went forward and gave his life to Christ. That was his junior year of high school. In his senior year of high school, he was high school's president in a high school of 1,000 students. He went to a mission organization, got 1,000 Bibles and books, and handed them to all of the students in the school. The next year, he went off to Maryland uh, College and Maryville College. And when he was there at Maryville College, he was so burdened for his high school students that he went back to the principal and said, over the Christmas break, can I hold a rally at my expense? 17 years of age. At my expense. For all of the students of the high school. And he said yes. During that time, his mother had come to faith in Christ. At the rally, 600 students came. Where he shared the gospel with all of them. Had material with all of them. And a few of the parents came. One of them being his dad. And at that, at that meeting, his dad gave his life to Christ. Because that's what God does. Then at 18 years of age, so burdened for Mexico, when he heard that 7 out of 10 Mexicans do not know the Lord, that he went to two friends and said, we got to do something. They sold everything they had. They got into a vehicle. They bought a 1,000 Bibles, and they went to Mexico to share the gospel with anyone who would listen to them. Came back and enrolled in Moody Bible Institute. He met a lovely young woman that he wanted to marry, and he said to her, the first time they met, he said, I want to be a missionary and go to the hardest reached places in the world. It's possible you will be eaten by cannibals. I do not know if you'd like that. She married him. Their honeymoon was spent as a mission trip sharing the gospel with people. And then you may know the story. He started Operation Mobilization. Operation Mobilization has to this day shared the gospel face to face with over 1.2 billion, not million, 1.2 billion people. And if you met him, he's been here, right? We had him here a few years ago. 
He was in town. He called me up. He heard that we were doing this thing called uh, Hamilton Impact. He said, could I come to the, the opening night and just pray for the event with? And I said, if you're coming, you're speaking. He said, no, 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 I heard you're speaking. I don't want to take that from you. I said, George, if you're in the room and I speak and you're listening, I feel the Lord would be really dishonored. You come, you speak. Um, well, the Lord will be dishonored. My elders may fire me. A whole bunch of stuff might go on. No, that's, that's, that is an exaggeration. I shouldn't have said that about my elders. My elders wouldn't have fired me for that. Um, and, and, uh, and so, George, you come and you speak, and he preached this incredible message on reaching the world for Christ. This man who at the time would have been, you know, 71 or 2, because he's never lost his passion, his drive for Jesus, and this, this young man, Epaphras, who we know very little about, experienced the grace of God, became a child of God, and realized, I need to go tell someone. And this place in Colossae was lost, a predominantly Gentile city, and he went and shared the gospel, and he planted a church there, and now the Apostle Paul is writing to him. Because the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. John Piper says this. Jason, you guys can come up. God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. Therefore, let it bring our affections into line. Let us bring our affections into line with his. And for the sake of his name, let us renounce the quest for worldly comforts and join his global purpose. He is a good God. He loves to save. Is that not good news? He grants us faith in himself, in the accomplished work of Christ and his resurrection. He grants us a love for himself and a love that he lavishes on us, that he allows us to have for others. And he grants us a hope, a hope that is certain and true, a hope that is stored up in heaven for you. It's what Peter says as well in his, in his epistle. Because you've heard the true message of the gospel. So between now and the end of, beginning of February, we're going to dive into this epistle. The epistle of Colossians. Where Paul writes to refute some false teaching. Allowing people to know that Christ Jesus in whom they believe. Is real and alive and true. The gospel they believed in is one that is growing and multiplying around this world. Not unmuch like our day today. False teaching all around us, but a gospel growing. I'd rather be a part of the gospel growing than it grow in spite of me. Pray with me. God in heaven, we are so thankful for your word we're thankful for this book of Colossians. May you take your word and open our eyes to your truth of who you are, what you've done, faith, love, and hope in the accomplished work of Christ. And then burden us, O oh God, to take what you've granted us and share it with those around us. We ask in Jesus' name.